This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome to Bay Area Ventures, a little show I like to call Money That Matters here on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. I'm both an investor and active manager of companies and projects that focus on the environment, i.e. heal the planet and help society. I would like to dub this socio-enviro capital model. The show, Money That Matters, is within Bay Area Ventures, all about entrepreneurial um, investors and CEOs that are helping change the paradigm and help shift the consciousness of all of us so we too can engage and make a difference. Bay Area Ventures show broadcasts live every Monday at 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern and re-airs again throughout the week. Our section, Money That Matters, will air once a month. And as a reminder, this is a live talk show. And if you have any question for me or our guest upcoming up, you can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Tonight, we have two guests, and our first guest is Aaron Ratner, Managing Director of Ultra Capital. And the second guest tonight will be Mark Hines, founder and CEO of Resonant Technologies Group. But for now, I'm thrilled to welcome our first guest, Aaron Ratner from Ultra Capital, a firm that is breaking the mold for project finance of sustainably driven small projects in ag, energy, water, and waste. Aaron is a key player driving the direction of the types of projects that have true impact. Aaron, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Roland. It's great to be here. Well, let's launch right into this. So Aaron and I go back a few years, and to, truth be told, I actually was there at Ultra Capital at the beginning, and Aaron is one of the most amazing people I've met during the process of helping form Ultra Capital and help, became integral to helping define the vision and the team. And so I'd like to start first, Aaron, asking you, tell me about the vision and mission of Ultra Capital. Sure. Uh, thank you, Roland. So, you know, at, at Ultra, uh, we call ourselves a sustainable infrastructure project finance investment firm, and what we're setting out to achieve is deploying private capital into projects between five and $150 million in size in those sectors you mentioned, wastewater, agriculture, and energy, creating long-term economically viable projects that are both addressing environmental problems, but also creating profit incentives for all the counterparties involved to help keep them operational and keep them going over time. That's great. Thank you. And tell me why you thought Ultra Capital was an interesting place to help create and make this paradigm because like project finance has been around a long time and so have these sectors. It has. You know, I think the the firm that's that's there today, the team that's in place right now at Ultra Capital is just an amazing group of people that have come together to try and achieve this mission. The the way that the the, the team is structured between a technology team we have in Boston, young people deploying technology to help drive the adoption of what we're trying to achieve in the market, our execution and asset management team, the way that we think about these projects and then help make, get them built. And then the, the way we think about the projects we need to be doing and what the problems are and how we can address them and, and how we prioritize that. Everybody's very synced up. So it, it's a firm where people are really aligned both in mission and strategy. And then just the model where we've got phenomenal investors giving us support in the form of capital to go out and do these projects and is uh, it's all coming together and it's 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 starting to become a great success. Well, that's great. I'd like to cover a few things while I have you on the air here because I think it's a, you have a wonderful background. Not only that, and what Ultra is doing is unique, but I think we missed something. Ultra Capital does project finance, and many of our listeners here are used to ventures, which are you know equity ventures and corporate entities. And could you define the difference between what project finance is and financing a a new venture, you know, uh, entrepreneurial bet? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So fundamentally, what we're doing is we are financing projects. So our capital goes into the construction and operation of a physical asset that's taking an input, normally a waste stream, and then creating some form of output, whether that's clean gas or energy or whatnot. And so rather than investing in the the corporate entity and helping drive intellectual property development or uh, human resources or all the things that happen at the corporate level, we concentrate our expertise and our capital at the project level. And what that allows us to do is focus on the deployment of these projects without getting wrapped up in any of the the larger corporate strategy. And that that becomes a compelling offering to developers in this sector because we're not investing in their company. We're truly just enabling them to roll out their production or services at a a faster rate. So would you make an analogy to, say, real estate? Would that be helpful for our audience maybe to talk about that analogy? So I'm a a developer, quote-unquote, says I want to build a building, and he does what, and then he comes to you when? Oh, sure, right. So in in project finance, one of the other key... Uh, tenses, you have to have a lot of uh, contracts around the project in order to keep it um, supported over the long term. So in the case of what we do, we look for a site to be secured. We look for the input streams to be contracted, the output streams to be contracted. We need an engineering firm there offering a, a you know a fixed price contract so we know how much the project is going to cost. We need to know who's going to operate the project. So there's a lot of agreements that need to be put in place around that project prior to investing in it and breaking ground. Whereas at the corporate level, you can you invest in the company, you buy equity, typically preferred equity, take a board seat, and you have some control over the decisions that are made at, at the corporate level. Great. So let's give some examples and bring it home for our audience here because I, it's still a little vague for me, even though I do understand it. But if I were just listening in, I wouldn't understand everything. So what are these projects that we're talking about? What, why do they make a difference and what are they actually? Sure. So a lot, a lot of what we found ourselves doing early in, in the fund is uh, – converting waste to either energy or to value. And by value, we mean some sort of industrial product. So as an example, we have a, a landfill gas capture project in Kentucky. And this is a very large landfill that used to take waste by rail all the way from New York City. And these large landfills that get filled up uh, end up accumulating waste for decades, and eventually methane starts to seep out. So there's very toxic gases coming out of these landfills that are just going straight up into the environment. They're significantly worse than carbon dioxide. Uh, it's possible to cover that landfill, drill holes in it, just like you would an oil field, and mine the gas out of the landfill. Now, in this case, you have to clean it and then compress it and then sell it into a pipeline. But once you've cleaned it and compressed it, you've got very clean, renewable natural gas. And so we have a project that's just coming online right now uh, that's doing exactly that. And so you've got what was previously a waste stream, a toxic gas being emitted into the environment that's not good for the local community or the planet, and now it's being repurposed as a source of energy for buyers of clean natural gas. So that's a landfill gas. Okay, landfill what about gas a project. solar project? Would that fall in your vernacular? We do a little bit of solar. There's a lot of capital chasing the solar industry right now, So we, but we have some very deep solar expertise in our team. One of our managing directors, Christian, has been in that sector for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So we have done a solar deal. We have a developer who's got a fairly innovative model that intertwines solar and real estate, which mm-hmm. we've, uh, we've invested in him. But that's a that's most likely going to end up being a smaller part of our portfolio over time. And why is that exactly? Because you said there's too much capital chasing that. There's a lot of capital chasing it, and the the types of returns that we're seeing at Ultra are um, are not available in the solar sector right now. But in the in the sectors that are slightly more call it progressive, sort of you know agriculture waste to value, wastewater treatment from industrial sources, uh, those are the returns are just significantly higher. Why don't you highlight like one of your favorite projects right now that you think is typical of what Ultra would do? Sure. 
So we have a we have a project. Um, we're spending a lot of time on livestock manure processing. It's a very <laughs> dirty business, but uh, most people listening to this may know that agriculture is actually one of the most, or if not the most, uh, dirty industries on the planet. It's a massive emitter of of toxins into the environment and carbon into the atmosphere. It you know in the United States over forty percent of the land in our country is used for agriculture. It's shocking. There's a, a thirty billion animals in the planet right now being farmed 23 billion of which are chickens it's, it's a massive industry and there's a lot of waste and inefficiencies there so we have a project right now in the southwest where we're we've gone to uh, a dairy and we're going to take all the manure coming off of that dairy that was previously just being what's called land applied where you spray it into a field and there's some of that is good for the soil but there's a lot a lot of excess that again turns into methane goes into the environment seeps into the local water system we're going to take all that manure and we're going to turn it into clean natural gas and sell it into a pipeline and there will be a byproduct there that's a you know a, a good quality fertilizer amendment wow wow so so this is a um what they call biodigester as well yeah it so it'll be digested okay all right and bi- digesters are kind of this old technology been around i think for centuries actually and now we're finally applying them more rapidly here in the states or? sure yeah it's it's you know in europe there are thousands of digesters of organic matter in the united states it's a little bit more nascent mostly because there's more room to put holes in the ground and there's more space and and fuels a lot cheaper here in the us but uh it's you know it's a process of decomposition that happens naturally in nature and Anaerobic digesters are a series of tanks that accelerate that process and concentrate the the gas coming out of it so you can repurpose it. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So if you put this together, this digester project, and this will help our audience again, it's like you have this contract for, to get the waste or the manure, or we won't use the expletive we think about, um, into the digester. And then you harness that. You get paid for that as well or not necessarily? In this case, um, well, in any case, in, in most cases, actually, um, it's a. What's interesting about the the agriculture sector is a lot of these farmers have waste that's a cost center for them, and so they're paying to get rid of it. They use some of it, they pay to get rid of the rest, or they give it away for free. If you show up and you tell them that you want it because you're going to turn it into something valuable, then they want some money for it. And so, we what we do is we front run that typically, and we sign a contract where we will compensate that uh, farmer through a 10 or 15 year contract so that uh, when the project's up and running and it is making money, they still feel good about giving us that waste stream. Okay. And then the revenue stream you derive after that. So you get sure. some, maybe money or maybe not money, or maybe you pay something for it. What's your revenue stream? Well, in that case, we're going to turn that manure into very clean, renewable gas. We'll, we'll clean it, we'll pressurize it, and then we'll sell it into a pipeline. So they, there will be a contract with a major energy company for some amount of that gas, uh, you know, typically 50% of the total gas coming off the project. And so there'll be uh, a single price for the gas and all the environmental credits that are attached to that gas. Fantastic. Okay. And so you get money for the gas. And is that all the products you get off? The, any other revenue streams possible? Uh, in this case, no. But uh, at this particular project in the Southwest and in some of the projects we're looking at on the East Coast, you can add poultry litter to that waste stream, to that manure, and poultry litter has a lot of nitrogen in it. And you can, if you process that, you break that down, you get a very valuable fertilizer product as a byproduct, which you can, in fact, sell into the market at a a, a pretty good price. Okay, you put all this together, and what kind of return? We'll talk about unlevered returns for a second. Ballpark, are you guys targeting usually when you do this? In this sector, broadly, you know, we we tell our investors in the market that our starting point typically on, across all projects in the project finance space is roughly the mid-teens. Mid-teens, yeah. unlevered, okay. And so when it's all said and done, you put it into a fund, and how many projects go into a fund? 
Well, our first fund had only a few projects in it. As you know, it was the first fund, and those are those are never easy. Going forward, we think our average project size will be roughly thirty-five to forty million dollars. And you know, if we're lucky and good, and some combination of those two factors, we'll get to a point where our funds are roughly five hundred million dollars in size. Okay, all right, great. And you tend to use leverage too, so you have an unlevered return and leverage, and so the net return to your investors is going to be pretty nice, isn't it? It can be phenomenal. Yeah, a lot of these projects are are proven technologies they're operating in europe or they're somewhere else in the u.s but a lot of banks aren't quite used to lending to them and so if we are able to fund through construction uh and get them up and running once they're steady state the the banks are much more comfortable lending at pretty attractive rates over time that's fantastic that's fantastic so all in all a good return and in a comparable to venture if you will over on the long term in terms of a fund dynamic right that's that's right on on average for sure you know yeah. we're uh, we're very much in the business of not losing money we're trying to make money for our investors and, and equally importantly we're trying to build projects that are very robust through economic cycles so we're trying to underwrite them in a way that allows them to sustain the ups and downs of the economies that they're exposed to uh, but yeah, over time we expect to be able to create a very stable, very attractive cash flow uh, investment for our investors with a lot l- less volatility because these are stable operating projects with defined cash flows that come in and you deliver to the investors. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so so this is great, and I want to take a little check about you yourself because you've gotten to this business and this space because you felt a passion for it, okay? Not that anybody has a passion for manure, but you have a passion for the earth, I guess, and the environment and people and all those things. I think that's why you're here. That's why I think we worked together at one point. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background and how you got here and what, what you did to get here and how that's important to you. Sure, sure. I am, I am completely blessed to be uh, working at Ultra right now. Uh, it's just an amazing place, and our, our mission is in, <clears throat> incredible, and it's going to be very successful I grew up in a small town called Carlisle, Massachusetts, about an hour west of Boston. Uh, I spent a lot of time in nature as a kid and really loved being in nature. Um, I was very connected to the idea of the Native Americans as, as, when I was growing up and was spent a lot of time thinking about animals, so not just the people on the planet, but how the animals were doing and how the, the trees and the plants were doing. And I had, went into university, became enchanted with money, moved to Hong Kong and started wearing tailored suits and cufflinks and... Uh, focusing on making money out of money. And it was exciting and stimulating. And I worked for some really incredible people and it was a great adventure. But eventually that path uh, ran out of energy for me and I realized that um, it just wasn't meaningful to me. And because of that, I wasn't actually going to be very good at it over time. And, And about eight years ago, I was very fortunate to meet a woman named Ashley Allen who was the founder of a company called I2 Capital Group. She was very early on in the impact investment space, and she had wanted to set out and build an impact investment merchant bank. We got involved in a project called the Sweetwater River Conservancy, which was a 1.3 million acre land conservation project in Wyoming. This brilliant entrepreneur had figured out a way to take private capital, buy that much land, turn it into permanent conservation easement in a way that was profitable for his investors. And it was Incredibly exciting. It was in in, uh, the middle of Wyoming, right along the Oregon Trail. Um, Very beautiful part of America. Great project. It just took a long time. It was very advisory oriented. So I I decided that I was better suited to be on the buy side and the capital deployment side. I I left there. I I joined a firm here in San Francisco called Generate Capital. was a developer in residence there for a few years. Um, 
eventually left, joined Ultra, as you know, because the, the vision of Ultra. Let me, let me hold you right sure. there. I just want to take a little, in case you're listening in, we're listening to Bay Area Ventures, actually a sub-show called Money That Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am Roland Vandermeer. My guest is Aaron Ratner, our managing director at Ultra Capital. And we're talking about his background and what led him to Ultra Capital as he just gets into the here. And if you have any comments or thoughts today, show, I invite you to call us at any time at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four nine four two seven eight six six. Aaron, sorry, go right ahead. Sure, of course. So, you know, I joined Ultra about three years ago, and what was clear to me from the very beginning was that the people who were there uh, were on a mission. They really cared about the work. Uh, there's an opportunity here to create a lot of wealth for our investors who are, you know, endowments and foundations as well as, as uh, private families. But there's, there's an opportunity to create a lot of economic wealth for the farmers and the counterparties in these projects and people who had previously been disposing of waste streams and holes in the ground or burning them can actually start to profit from repurposing those waste streams. So there's this huge opportunity to shift the way that uh, our country and eventually the planet does business in a regenerative, reusable way that's circular and beautiful and, and increasingly profitable. And, and what, what I saw and what's starting, what we're seeing is the it's becoming more profitable to do it that way than it is to just extract from the earth and burn it up. And what, that that is a really important point, and I think we talked about this many years ago, actually. Why is that the case? Because what? What is the fundamental driver why this is better and more profitable than the old way? Well, I think there's a few, but l let's start with the repricing of resources, right? So we as as humans have run out of space to waste, right? There's no more land to farm animals. There's no more water to waste. There's no more ocean to violate by overfishing. There's nowhere to dump all of our fertilizer runoff. So we've run out of space. And so it doesn't, in many ways, it no longer matters who's running the EPA because there are just physical boundaries that are being breached by the agriculture industry and the waste industry, for example, and all that waste is overflowing and it's starting to affect everybody. So the, the, the resources that are out there, the, the um, water, for example, uh, agriculture, minerals, elements, the, the resources that are available to uh, business are becoming more and more, uh, uh, are sort of need to be repriced basically and are being repriced without the, the, the direction of business. And it's, it's happening just because there's scarcity. Do you think people realize the magnitude of what you're saying right here on the show? I mean, we read about it. We read about the environment. We, but most people seem to not understand what they can do about it or what to do about it or if they can do about it. And here you are working really hard. It seems like it's been your passion for a while. And you think that shift is making, that awareness shift and understanding the value of these resources, what's going on? Uh, the shift is, is happening for sure. We are seeing more and more young people coming into this sector, people who are incredibly skilled and talented and empowered to choose a career path that is meaningful to them, that's coming from their heart center, not just their 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 brain. And, and so I, I think the shift is happening. Uh, it's very tempting for people to watch the news and in take in a bunch of sensationalist media and just think there's no way this is going to work. There's no way to save the planet. But actually that's just the bad guys trying to convince it, all the good guys that that's an inevitability. So they'll stop trying to make the world a better place, mm. but it is, it is totally possible and it is happening. And you know, we're starting small where, you know, all the, the, the other investment firms that are out there, the industry is quite nascent right now, but you know, we were talking about this earlier. It's like the first few seconds of getting a rocket ship into outer space are the moments when it gets off the ground. And even though it's not moving very far, that's when all the energy is getting burned up, right? Once it's, couple miles into outer space and the gravity's 
laying off a little bit and starting to move a little faster, that it's, it's easier and easier for it to accelerate. But it's that beginning that's just incredibly hard. That's a great analogy. I love that. I think, you know, there's a lot of inertia uh, that we are overcoming right now. And uh, it's important that the energy you and your team and many other companies actually are light lit up. In fact, who do you see out there like you're kind of playing with, talking to? There's a lot of big infrastructure people out there that do project finance, but they're big and they're billions of dollars, and yet they don't seem to understand this realm that we're talking about. And that's kind of puzzling to me. Well, you know, the large private equity infrastructure <laughs> funds are just have so much capital to allocate. None of them can look at a deal that's $100 million, right? It just doesn't make any sense for them. But I think what's really, what we're seeing that's really exciting is the corporate side. So all of the major corporations in America, global consumer products companies, global industrial products companies, construction companies, wastewater companies, are starting to wake up to the fact that one, they need to do this because it's the right thing to do. So all of them are hiring sustainability officers. All of them have it as part of their corporate mandate. But also, going back to what we were talking about earlier on circular economy, it's actually profitable for them to do something. You know, We have a, another project up in North Dakota that's taking 500,000 tons a year of agriculture waste that was previously just thrown in the backyard or maybe they try to do something with it and turning it into clean biofuel. And the way that we structured that project was we're, we're actually giving the, the waste providers a cut of the, the revenue. So they're economically incentivized to keep giving us that waste because they're part of the project. Wow. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So you think this, the whole notion of corporate sustainability officers actually is more than architecture, as I like to call it? You think there's actually some real substance coming to that? Or how many of those companies actually really do care and are really doing something about it versus just talking about it and hiring like they do care? I think it's it's a mix across the board. So the the sustainability officers at all these corporations are to be commended because they are are taking job titles and trying to change businesses that often have been around for a long time and have a lot of inertia and it's very hard to turn these and change them. But in many ways the CFO at these companies is also the sustainability officer because the CFO has to make sure the bills get paid and it's profitable because if it's not a profitable business this is going to go away. And, and what we try to do is we try to get to that individual as well and make the economic case. So it's not just about the environment. It's here's a way to make more money. And by economically incentivizing everybody involved, that's when you start to make the big shifts. And you, you could say that that's unfortunate. Everyone should just be idealistic, but that's not the way the world works right now. So you have to incentivize everybody or you just don't get the, the transition as, as effectively. Yeah. As I remember, you uh, talked to a lot of students all the time. You went to the Wharton School, in fact, right? And uh, I went to the college, actually, full disclosure. Okay. All right. You went to their college. Yes. Okay. But still, you were a pen. Okay. And I think you go back and talk to people there quite a lot in other schools as well. Are you finding people kind of resonate with what you're saying? Are they hearing you? Do they, do they care or do they want to go work at McKinsey or or Goldman Sachs, for that matter. And not that I put those firms down. They're great firms, but we're talking about things that matter here. Yeah, those are, those are great firms. Um, and we, you know, we will end up hiring people who've worked at those firms. So those are great training grounds as well. Uh, yeah, f absolutely. I, I spoke at Stanford a few weeks ago, and a couple of women from the business school had put on an event for a day. And the attendance was amazing. The people who showed up to speak, that you know, Patrick Brown from Impossible Foods, really exceptional people in the industry came are out of their way to speak to students. So it's not only that students are starting to show up to these things more and more, but industry leaders, people who are very busy running massive businesses are taking more and more time to speak to students. So there's connectivity coming in both ends. And I think that's, that's really driving, uh, just driving the opportunity. 
Ah. So are there job offers, are there job openings for these students in this space? Because they always are knocking on the door and saying, you want in. I know I pass you a bunch of resumes, you know, weekly saying these kids want in. And but you can only hire so much, and you're only one firm, so to speak. But I know there's a lot of people looking right now. Yeah, the, you know the sector is growing. The some of the firms in this space are growing a little bit faster than we are right now, potentially. But we are we are hiring this year. We're hiring across all divisions of our business. And if we're, you know, as I said before, if we're lucky and good, we'll continue to grow as as we have more and more assets to deploy, and we become better and better at what we do. Okay. All right. So what I do want to get into a little bit is a bit more about Ultra and what makes it unique in terms of I know the sector it works in and the sectors it works in and the intention. But as I you know, remember and, and know, actually, you have a lot of technology and you mentioned you have a technology team, which is really rare for an investment firm to have a technology team. There's something about that. And also how you set up to kind of manage business that's different than uh, other infrastructure firms or uh, private equity firms for that matter. And I really want to cover some of that. So can you get into kind of delineate what you do that's so unique and different? Sure. Yeah, I think it really, it all comes down to the the team and the amazing group of people that we have in place right now. I'm, I just, uh, I'm so proud of the the firm and the, all the people who are there now who've joined and really come together to, to you know, stick around and make this a, a long-term success. Uh, we are also happen to be an investment firm populated by developers, engineers, and operators. Everybody at this who has a senior position in our firm has run a business, has had P&L responsibility for a construction project or an operating project or been an entrepreneur. So we really understand what it's like to be on the other side of the table. And because of that, that allows us to design tools to enable developers in this sector to be better at what they're doing in a way that I think is a very unique offering in the market. And, and that, that starts, as you mentioned, with our technology team. So we have a, a phenomenal team of uh, brilliant young people in Boston run by a woman named Tisha Feldman who have uh, built uh, this incredible internal engine that we use to be very iterative and to an analyze our projects. And they've also just rolled out something called the developer portal, which is an external facing engine that we use to interact with developers to help them think more clearly about their projects, to process their projects with Ultra and move them through the, the deal process. Uh, and it also, you know, Regardless of whether or not they do their deal with Ultra, by interacting with us, we hope that we help them think more clearly about their project and we make their project a bit more successful. So the, yeah. the, the first steps that they take with us result in an output that they can take with them. And even if they go to one of our competitors, we, we help them be more successful. And I, I tell every developer that we speak with, the most important thing is that they are successful because the planet needs them and the industry needs them to be successful. So that's number one. The second most important thing, a very distant second, is that Ultra get, gets to be a part of that. And, of course, we'd love to finance every great project out there, but that's not going to happen. But the, the, the focus is really on developers. So we have a very developer-centric model uh, from the very beginning, from the start of we interact with them. And that carries through the way that we originate and work with developers early on in interacting with them and helping them think clearly about what it takes to get a project on the table at Ultra Capital then the tools that we have once we just sign a term sheet and we're in the process of diligencing and underwriting the, the project, we share a lot of tools with developers through that phase as well so that their fate is really in their hands. Let, let, me, let me help out there a little sure. bit because I think you can clarify this. There's something about project finance that you, you just live and breathe it. But it's, it's the exactness and the preciseness. It's the contracts. It's buttoned down because if you do this well, your contracts, you know, could be the boilerplate for everybody to use. And it's not just like a venture deal or anything like that. This is actually how you deal with you know, O&M firms, how you deal with engineering firms, how you deal with supply contracts. Because that defines the project, those contracts. Right. 
And when you're saying that you're helping entrepreneurs or these developers out, you really are helping them. You're creating a much better return for them, a much better financial analysis, a much better contractual. And that sets, you know, your worlds apart from most other firms because you kind of educate them and build them. That's what you're saying. And even if they don't go with us, they learn a shitload and they can go with someone else. Excuse me. Um, the, um, I think this is okay. I think, um, Sirius is allowed to have right. some, uh, but so let me, let me say something about that. So, you, you know, we, um, that's right. And we, uh, one of the reasons why the, the sort of clean tech 1.0 movement failed is because a lot of these projects were funded by venture capitalists who had great vision and great intention, but didn't understand the way that operating projects need to be supported. And so, you know, all these tools I'm mentioning, the, one of the, the purposes of that is to be very thoughtful and mindful about what the project really looks like. What are the risks the, that project is going to face over time? How do we contract and support that project early on and set it up for success so that by the time we're investing in the project, we're taking a very conservative approach and we put together a very robust project that's going to survive whatever bumps in the road it hits. Fantastic. Fantastic. And then that differentiation is big because I know in the venture world and many people have tried projects like this and have run into errors and faux pas and not understanding it's not the same thing. It's really more akin to a real estate developer project mm-hmm. business, but there's a lot more complexity than people realize in these things. Yeah. And you need to, it's a different mindset, you know, uh, in venture uh, and venture capital is very important for our sector as well. We talk to a lot of venture capitalists about the deals they're working on now. And three to five years from now, those deals will be hopefully some of them will be ones that, that we can finance. But in, in what we're doing in sustainable infrastructure in the project finance level where you're building projects that you expect to be successful and stable for 20 to 30 years, uh, you know, particularly in the agriculture sector where you actually need the sun, the earth to rotate, excuse me, the earth to rotate around the sun and the earth, the earth to spin on its axis. You know, you need night and day to come and help the fields regenerate. And then you need the seasons to come. You need big cycles to actually flow in order to make sure the project is successful, right? These projects are taking waste that comes out of the ground that is driven by the energy of the sun. So you just need to be thinking very long term about sustainability and not looking for a quick hit. It's a, it's a long term play. Yeah, and, and I guess we're, we're going to break in a little bit, but I do want to cover the different sectors and a little more detail about that because I think it's really important for our audience to understand the, the magnitude and depth and breadth of where you go as a firm and, and the different skill sets it requires to do that because I think it's quite unique as opposed to many other investment practices. And that's why I think the big firms have these mass amount of assets, but they're very focused on doing a finite number of things because that's it's really challenging to do all that, right? Mm-hmm. What, what um, in terms of you said, if other firms are growing quicker in your space too, do you find that's happening? You find there are firms that are like you right now that are growing and a number of them. So this is, is this whole world accelerating now? Yeah, we think the industry is accelerating. So, you know, some of the other investment funds in this space are, are steady state and staying small. Some of them aspir- have aspirations to be very large and have a large headcount. It, it depends on what the strategy is. Oh, fantastic. But hopefully more and more companies uh, enter the space because competition will drive success and it will push everyone to do a better job. And hopefully that availability of capital will incentivize more and more entrepreneurs to enter the sector. Okay. All right. Well, we need to take a short break here. I'm Roland Vandermeer. My guest this hour is Aaron Ratner and we'll continue this conversation in about uh, a few minutes. Um, And we're listening to Bay Area Ventures, a special show called Money That Matters on business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.
Hello and welcome back to Bay Area Ventures, a special show called Money That Matters on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and my guest this hour is Aaron Ratner, Managing Director of Ultra Capital. And when we left off, we were starting to talk about a little bit about investors, about the projects, and I want to reintroduce the circular economy concept that Aaron brought up earlier in the show because it's, I think, very relevant to what Ultra is doing. Aaron, let, let's start there, actually, okay? Because um, circular economy is kind of a concept of cradle to cradle. There's famous books written about that, about how you, whatever you use, you should put back in the state you found it, okay? So everything is better than it was or at least equal to. Uh, those are kind of really great concepts. But why don't you give me your definition of circular economy and how you view it uh, being part of ultra capital? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, even when I was back at I2 Capital, if you or anybody in this sector five, 10 years ago, if you walked into a large corporation and said you wanted to talk about sustainability, they would just roll their eyes because you were representing a cost center to them. But the, the tide has really shifted and the, there, the, but the technology has gotten so good right now that it's possible to repurpose almost any waste stream and reuse it again, break it down and reuse it as energy or as industrial material. So there's just become a, a profit opportunity to stop being linear with our industrial processes and stop filling holes in the ground with our garbage. So this is, it's become profitable, and that's that's really driving a lot of that circularity as as beginning. And, and you know, it goes back. We were talking about venture capital earlier. That's that's playing a very important role here because the the technology is getting so much better and cheaper to develop that the kind of projects that we want to be financing that are converting large waste streams into uh, industrial material is, is becoming easier and easier to finance. So over time, the, the, the businesses that are getting seeded here in San Francisco and around the country by you know really good venture capitalists are going to build larger businesses that can take project finance and deploy much sooner in their, their life cycle than that was available 10 years ago. Well, one of the concepts I, I, I do think is really important to understand is, is that these technologies you're using, okay, this is really what distinguishes what you're doing from a lot of venture deals. These technologies are well known and understood. They've been around, right? Yeah, everything we do is proven and at scale. Uh, and in many cases, we're, we're um, you referencing facilities that are either in the U.S. or in, in Europe. And so one the project that I mentioned that's in North Dakota, the, the there was a facility in Poland that was operating that we that we copied and brought over to the U.S. So everything we do is has to be um, pr- sort of, as I said, referenceable, largely because we just, we're not set up to take that kind of risk when you need the kind of contracts that we've discussed uh, and you're achieve, trying to achieve the returns that we're targeting. You, you know, you can't, you're not trying to hit home runs and you're doing as your best not to lose money. So you're just trying to build these very sustain, very sustainable, stable long-term successful projects. So, so it's really interesting. You're taking a, a waste stream or some sort of something that's not used by society, and we'll call it waste for now. You're using technology that's understood and known and been deployed before. You're applying contractual knowledge, construction knowledge, and basically helping execute something, and you're getting a great return for that. I mean, there doesn't sound like a lot of risk in there. Where is the risk in this, Brett? Well, there's operating risk in any physical project because you've got human beings at a physical plant uh, working on uh, physical throughput. So the, the, there's physics going on every day. And so there are things that can happen, um, you know, random power outages or uh, something can break and overheat and burn or, or whatnot. So there there are things that happen at any operating project you need to be ready to deal with. Um, but you can, 
if you are if you know what you're doing in the diligence process as you're underwriting and setting up these projects, you can build the contracts around the project in a way that sets them up to be very robust when those downturns come. So in the case of a project that like we met talked about earlier, it's taking dairy manure and converting that to uh, clean gas. We're able to underwrite that project in a way that even if the price of gas goes down significantly and the environmental credits that are, that are out there that the state of California is offering drop significantly in price, the project is still profitable. So we, we, if you take a conservative approach and you have people on your team who understand the engineering and know how to set those contracts up, the projects that you build uh, are just going to survive. Okay. So, so is there any way, Strain, I think that you are in doing what we call some sort of materials recycling plant, which is basically a fancy word for a dump. Is not, and you have a project like that in your portfolio today, is right? Can you explain that? I mean, this is taking real waste that we all throw out every day into the garbage, goes away. What's that plant doing? What's it recycling? And is it really doing a hundred percent of everything and recycling it all? Or where are we? Where are we on that? Well, nobody yet can take one hundred percent of a municipal solid waste stream and repurpose it. Some of the the cross um, the mixing of those waste streams <clears throat> makes them too toxic to separate at the moment. But that facility takes waste from roughly 100 communities and it uses high-speed sorting technology to strip it and separate it all apart. So you get the recyclable materials out, you get any sort of cellulosic material out that you can use to make um, pulp with or energy with. Uh, and through that, you can divert, depending on what time of year it is and what the waste stream is, you know, 60 to 80% of what was going to end up in a landfill. And how different is that than current uh, dumps, if you will? How much do they recycle versus, you know, your plant? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's it's in a part of the country where it's pretty easy to throw it in the ground or burn it. And that's actually one of the things that, you know, the United States has gotten very used to having a lot of land mm-hmm. and where it's very cheap to dig a big hole in the ground. And we also have very cheap energy, you know, and the Europeans have neither. And this is one of the reasons why there are 8,000 anaerobic digesters in Europe, because gas is so expensive. In the United States, it's a fraction of the cost. Right. So uh, as industry grew, take landfills, for example, 40 or 50 years ago when all the landfills were being set up, 15 miles outside of town was in the middle of nowhere. So they just dig a big hole and start filling it with garbage. Now there are golf courses and communities and schools surrounding these landfills and they're seeping methane and everyone's worried about it and the landfills are filling up and there's no more space. Right. I think I'm playing golf on or soccer actually in one of those landfills down in the peninsula here. Um so, so going back to the circular economy, so you said you can go up to 80%, which is a great noble goal. The other 20% must get buried somewhere, right? But the goal is really 100% in the circular economy vernacular, right? And yeah. Do you see us getting there at any time? That'll happen. There are companies in uh, Europe now that are in the business of something called landfill mining, where uh. they're going into landfills and just scooping out all that old, disgusting garbage and figuring out ways to separate it. So that will – eventually the technology will be there to do that. Uh, plastics is the same thing is happening. Plastics is having a huge revolution right now. There's technology that's coming online that can break down plastics into reusable materials, which is phenomenal. There's also a enormous movement being led by a guy named Rob Kaplan to get plastics out of the ocean. He just raised a fund called the plastics ocean fund. So he's going to start deploying private capital to make people aware of, and then create businesses that pull plastic out of the ocean. That's not that Dutch guy that's been uh, leading this for a number of years, building his system. No, no, it's a, he's a young entrepreneur. In, in New York City used to work at Walmart. But, ah, but okay. that, that's coming. The technology will be there. It's and about then, the fourth group I've heard. This one. It's fantastic. Yeah. They're working on their problem. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody in our audience must be aware, but can you explain the problem around all the oceans right now? Sure. Every piece of fish that everybody eats that's more than a couple weeks old has some plastic in it. It's shocking. 
the nicest sushi on the planet. It has a little bit of plastic. It's just everywhere now. Um, and it's not going away. And the oceans have been significantly overfished to, to boot. So uh, what what's happening is uh, a couple of things. The, there are technologies coming online to pull plastics out of the ocean to aggregate that. Unfortunately, that's very microscopic. But wonderfully, the planet is actually able to, to deal with some of that. Mm. on its own. And then on the, the fishing side, there's a lot of very interesting large-scale aquaculture coming on land. We're yeah. seeing that in Europe and in the U.S. Where it's not so toxic and not so harmful and doesn't use bad feed sources that are... It's clean water. It's not poisoning the local environment. The feed is clean. And it's local. You know, one day people are going to want to eat a piece of salmon that was farmed 30 miles away, not farmed 6,000 miles away, put on an airplane and flown all the way uh, over for dinner and no plastics in it. Yeah, and no plastics in it. Yeah, that is a shame. My sushi diet just went from less because of mercury to less because of plastics now. Yeah. So, but what's it, one of the things that's really interesting about plastics is that plastic toxicity increases estrogen levels in men. And so, one of the things that's happening on the planet is that the, the humanity is actually lowering the testosterone levels across all people on the planet through its through its toxic waste and wow. that will eventually if you understand the difference between men and women that's going to create less hostility potentially and more community <laughs> there we go so yeah. it's doing a, a good thing service yeah, to it's the planet self-regulating itself planet doing it's the good. planet not our planet men people don't war. really get that yeah there we go the planet's actually a woman isn't it <laughs> it sure <laughs> is okay i love that um Okay, so so let's talk about the deal flow a little bit because I, I know that you know you're you've been in the space now almost uh, what, three four years now as Ultra Capital and really investing for almost two years. Um, so tell us about the deal flow, the type of deal, just the whole range. I mean, I it's, here it's more diverse than ever, and I'm just interested because that kind of gives you a sense of what's going on around the United States for sure. But I think you also see deal flow from around the world as well. Yeah. So it's, you know, our deal flow is really exciting to me. And I, I think to uh, hope to the rest of our team, we've got, you know, the developers from our first fund, we've got additional projects coming online with them. So we've now we've funded their first projects. They're empowered. They know how to do it. They're coming back to us with more projects to do, whether those are more landfills or more agriculture waste projects. And then for our second fund, we've made huge inroads into the livestock manure space, but, you know, poultry litter, dairy manure, swine waste. We've, we've got some really neat organic waste uh, projects we're working on. We're working on some very cool agriculture waste to value projects where we're taking enormous half a million ton waste streams post-harvest, so the biomass waste that's left over in a field or post-production, what's coming off of these massive production facilities and turning that into animal feed or pulp for paper manufacturing or pulp for particle board for construction. It's just incredible. So, you know, the technology is really empowering these developers to get their projects a lot more project finance ready than they would have been five to 10 years ago. So our, our pipeline right now is, you know, many billions of dollars uh, in wow. size. And we've wow. got, because of our team and because of the people we have in place, all the way from our tech team to our asset management team, uh, developers are increasingly seeking us out because they know that if they come to Ultra Capital, there's a very high degree of um, probability that they're going to be a success because we will be there with them and we will empower them to, to make their project a great success. I remember you saying that often it's like they want surety of capital because they're used to going to other private equity firms or family offices and 
running into like this is what we're doing and then they finally scratch scratch diligence diligence and since they're kind of amateurs at all this they come and run away and saying look we don't want to do this because there's these gotchas in there and you guys solve those gotchas before they're there right and remember you have a checklist or something like that we have a lot of checklists uh we have a lot of uh materials we share with developers but just as important, if not more important, we have some very senior people who've done some very large engineering projects in their careers between our, our CIO and uh, the fellow heads up asset management and then our senior exec- one of our senior execution guys. Uh, you know, these, these, they've, they've all got uh, gray hair on their heads. and They've been around for many decades. I, I call them the silverbacks of ultra capital, but they've, they've been around for so long that they can sit down with a young developer and articulate a litany of speed bumps that developer is going to hit in the road that that developer hasn't even thought of yet. And they can help us do that as well internally. And what that allows us to do is assess risk very early on. And then as we're going through all those contracts, we can address those risks and before we start investing. So that on the day that we start deploying capital, we've built the most conservatively underwritten and robust project we possibly can. Wow. Fantastic. So, so you mentioned the silverbacks. That's really interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't go there, but since I'm probably one of them. But um, tell me about the young people. You said you have a lot of experienced people that have all this world experience. But what if young people want to join you? Where do they start, and how do they get into this space? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening would love that idea. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're visible. We're, we're certainly online, and people are on LinkedIn. So we we consider ourselves to be very accessible as a firm, and we spend a lot of time talking to developers. You know, we average anywhere from 12 to 18 months between the time we sign a term sheet to breaking ground on a project. And, you know, most of our developers, uh, we, we've been speaking with them for a year or two before we even get a term sheet. So we're very early in the dialogue with them. We're helping them to the extent we can. Uh, and as far as young people, you know, as I mentioned, we are hiring a few people this year. Eventually we'll hire more. Uh, we are always referring young, talented people to some of our development teams. There are large corporates that are coming to us looking for talent as well. So the, the, the space is being increasingly populated. And, and as I, I said before, the more smart young people that come into this sector, the more competitive it gets, the more capital will flow into it, and it will become a self-fulfilling success. In and, and experience you're looking for for somebody. So, so how am I going to join your team being fresh out of uh, Wharton School or sure. any other major schools? What, sure. what are you looking for? What kind of skill sets and what do you expect them to know and learn? Well, the the most important thing is that they know how to function in a team because one of the interesting things about project finance and about the way ultra capital works is that there's no such thing as one person's deal. So unlike a, a venture firm or a private equity firm where a director or managing director may have their deal or their deals, there's no way to do one of these deals on your own. So it, every single deal needs the technology team to support it, the origination team, the asset management team, the execution team, the finance team to, to support the back end. So uh, we have a very team-oriented approach to the way it works. So that's the most important. Uh, but then they have to have, hopefully have had some experience at a project or at a business because this isn't just finance. It's not just looking at Excel models and reading some industry reports and coming up with a thesis on how you might get out of that business in five years. It's understanding how businesses operate, what are the risks that are how, that are they're going to encounter, and then building the, the business around uh, uh, those risks in a way that will allow it to survive over, over the long term. 
Wow. So some operating experience at a startup would be wonderful at a big energy company. And then a, and certainly an understanding of how energy markets work or how, you know, how this, this sector functions at a large scale is, is, is very relevant. Okay. And then that would be like an analyst or associate position and you're not expecting them to be Excel jockeys, are they? Or what? No, we don't. Uh, the, the financial modeling on the, the actual underwriting side is not particularly complicated. The, the way that we think about variability and, and, um, uh, probability over time is quite sophisticated and that's handled by our technology team, but the Excel skills are not a, a significant part of what we do. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, I hope everybody's listening out there because I think it's an awesome company. I think the space is blooming right now. So let, let's go to the investor side of things with the experience of the investors. So you have a number of investors right now in your first fund. I think your second fund's all but done and that's great. But what, what do the investors, how they engage with you when they talk to you? What, what's their experience and what do you think they're thinking right now? Sure. So I would just, I would just know we, have, we do have great investors in our first fund and hopefully they'll all be in our second fund. Um, you know, we're, we're going to have a first closing on our second fund soon. Um, you know, I think the, what's nice about our investors is that they're, they're patient. They understand how long uh, these projects are going to be functioning. They understand how it takes 12 months to build them. Uh, it takes a while to find them. So we've, we've got really patient investors. And, well, let, let's and, talk about that word because yeah. it's really interesting you say that. Being in venture, I can tell you patience is, you know, five to seven years they talk about and yet funds are open for 10, you know, 15 years sometimes. So patience for a venture firm is a lot longer. PE firms is probably longer. You just said 12 months when you, before you find a break ground and then 12 months to construct and you're kind of in cash flow during sometime in the third year. Mm-hmm. That's not pay. That's really amazingly quick. So you're in return profile fairly quickly. So it's pretty unique as far as an asset classes go that way. It's a very unique asset class. And I think the way that we think about our portfolio and we underwrite our projects is pre- presents a, a, a portfolio a basket of projects across multiple sectors and geographies and industries. That's really unique and really special. And, and when they're up and running, uh, our investors and, and our employees and our developers are all going to be very proud of what we've all built together. And then you get repeated deal flow from those existing uh, projects you've done from those developers and people see you successful with more and more mm-hmm. success breeds success there. So do you take investors into the field and show them what you're doing actually? Is that like something that you do? Yeah. Site visits is a really fundamental part of uh, how we interact with our investors. Uh, obviously there's a lot of internal diligence, but when you take an investor onto a f- operating facility and they can see with their own eyes, what it looks like, what the waste looks like coming in and what the large hundred foot high tanks look like where the waste is being converted into something else and <clears throat> or the high speed sorter looks like when it's functioning. And, and then what the, you know, the gas connection line looks like, which is usually pretty anticlimactic. It's, it's not that big for the amount of volume you can move through a gas pipe. It's, it's amazing. And uh, our investors get a really good sense of what, what their capital is doing. It gives them a, a sense of really relating to the mission and the purpose. And that's, that's really helpful for a lot of people who spend most of their time in an office, um, you know, looking at paperwork or computer screens. Okay. And when they come back from those field experiences, are they inclined to invest? Are they saying, Oh my God, this is so dirty and so messy and so blank. Um, are they excited about it or do they really get what this is possible? What's possible here? I would, I, my hope would be both. I, I think our investors go to these projects. They see uh, what's going on. They, uh, uh, it looks like a very big project, and they realize that we need to do with thousands more of them. So they, the mission starts to resonate with them, and and then they understand, 
that the conservative approach that Ultra takes to underwriting these, so that we make sure these projects are long-term successes is really important. And it's, uh, it's important for the developers and the farmers and the agriculture communities and every, all the counterparties involved because, you know, again, we talked about earlier, there were so many failures in Cleantech 1.0. Uh, and it's it's pretty easy. It's actually very easy to invest your money. It's really hard to get it back. Right. So let's let's go there for a moment or two. We have a few minutes left here, and I really want to cover that. This is not clean tech investing. Let's be really clear about that. This is not venture capital. Right. And, and the distinction being what exactly when I say that? Well, it's not clean tech. It's not venture. It's not traditional infrastructure. It's not private equity. It's not impact investing. It's sustainable infrastructure. It's it's the you know it is it's its own its own beast at the moment, and it, I think it will continue to be that way. Uh, you know, we just are at a point right now where there's enough projects out there that are proven, and there's enough technologies and operators available where we can start deploying massive amounts of capital without taking any significant operating or engineering or construction risk. And if we can do that, and then we have the counterparties both on the the waste side and then the corporate side who are willing to support these projects with lo- with long term contracts, we got projects in our hands. Wow. So I want to bring that home. This is clean tech investing has tremendous technological risk in it, and mm-hmm. you don't seem to take that risk, right? We don't take any technology risk, but I will reiterate that clean tech venture capital is very important because out of clean tech venture, there will be companies that are phenomenal candidates for project finance. Ah. And we're always talking to those clean tech investors and we're talking to clean tech entrepreneurs. So we cultivate those relationships and we hope that over time as they get their companies through a good series A and they figure out how to build a reference facility or a commercial demonstration unit and they get ready to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars in physical infrastructure that we're there and they trust us and they know that we can help them become a success. Oh, so you you come to them as a partner then as a cheaper form of capital than their equity capital, which is highly <clears throat> dilutive to them. You are basically on the project, so you're financing the brick and mortar, so to speak. That's right. It's non-dilutive project-level equity capital, so it's not dilutive at the corporate level. So if a founder is out there looking to uh, preserve corporate equity, we're a phenomenal capital partner for them. All right. And so that is that is phenomenal. So any clean tech project that has these project aspirations, you'd be the a good target and good target partner to talk to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And we have a lot of we also have a lot of venture funds that we're partnered with who are always looking for deals, so it goes both ways. Okay. All right. Well, I think um at this point I think we're running out of time here. And unfortunately, Aaron has been a Pleasure speaking to you, and I enjoy seeing you all the time. Um, so I'm very fortunate. Aaron Ratner, who's a managing director of Ultra Capital, okay, spent a good hour with us here. And thank you so much, Aaron, for really enjoying you know, the conversation. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on this show and share this story with everyone. And our listeners, to learn more about you, I said you can go online to Ultra Capital. I think you're reachable by there. Is that yeah, right? I'm on LinkedIn and okay. all right. well, that's website, very accessible. Fantastic. They'll do that. Just ahead, we'll, recall, we'll be speaking to Mark Hyde. CEO of Resonant Technologies Group, and about how he sees technology in the world evolving using resonant physics. I'm Roland Vanrick. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. 
Welcome back to SiriusXM, Bay Area Adventures, a little subsection I like to call Money That Matters here on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, live from the campus of Wharton in San Francisco. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. For those of you joining in, it's all about entrepreneurial investors and CEOs that are helping change the paradigm and shift the consciousness of all of us so we too can engage and make a difference. If you have a question, we'd love to, you to join in the conversation. You can reach us at 844-WHARTON, and that's 844-942-7866. I'm joined here now by, in the studio with Mark Hines. Mark is the founder and CEO of Resonance Technology Group, a company that is a creator, incubator, and accelerator of technologies and companies that are based on resonance physics, solving problems in energy, health, agriculture, environment, material science. Mark has been funding these types of projects for over 18 years and has created some really revolutionary types of products that are just coming on mainstream now. Mark, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Roland. Glad to be here. You're welcome. You're welcome. We have lots to cover. We have a whole hour to talk, and I'm sure the audience is really willing to hear what you what this is all about. So first... Um, what I'd like to ask you is a little bit resonance physics. It's a, it's comes up a bunch and people always ask the question of what is resonance physics? Yes. Yeah, a great question. It's uh, definitely getting some more awareness and glad to see that after all these years. And so I think the simplest way to describe resonance physics is really looking at how nature functions to solve what uh, most people would think could be really maybe complex problems and, you know, energy, agriculture, health, material sciences. And then, being in resonance with how nature functions to operate to solve these problems and then creating technologies, systems, and methods uh, to emulate that. So that's really, uh, I guess, the... Can you give us some specific examples what resonance physics is and how it functions so we can bring it home? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, one of the, some really good examples I think that most people can re- relate with um, one is if we, we look at how a magnet works, for instance. So most people, I think there's probably a few trillion magnets being used in the world today. And if uh, we look at it and we say, okay, really, how does a magnet work? So, you know, it's, if it's iron or neodymium gets charged, a little electromagnetic charge, and people understand, we, you know, we put it on the refrigerator and it holds up my child's little piece of artwork for 10 years. It does some great work, but... If we look at the physics of it, it really defies what we understand about, you know, the standard model of physics. Like, where is all of that work that that magnet is doing coming from? And so by looking at where it's coming from, I mean, this field of electromagnetic energy that we exist within, we start to realize that when that magnet or when that iron or that neodymium is first charged, it changes its kind of orientation of where it's getting its energy from. It's in resonance with this electromagnetic field, and it starts to be a lot more effective. So it goes from a benign piece of iron to something doing some really extraordinary things. And so that would be a really simple example of resonance physics. Would you say that the physicists don't know how to answer the question of how a magnet really works? Is that? Yeah, it's really quite extraordinary. Wow. Some of the greatest minds that uh, you know, exist today, they know that if you give it an initial charge, it does some work, but the amount of work that that magnet will do over time yeah. greatly exceeds its initial charge. Wow. And the standard model of physics doesn't allow for that. Okay. Now I, so, so it does more work than it was given, uh, energy than it was given. Initially, yes. What other, what other uh, examples can you give us? Well, there's uh, 
in our emerging science of uh, stoichiometry, which is kind of look at the energy of you know biological systems. So if we look at the human body, uh, if we look at that it's operating, let's say, for 24 hours at 98.6 degrees, mm-hmm. if we just look at that from a, a BTU perspective of how much heat that's producing, it's a very easy calculation to say the human body would need to consume X amount of calories mm-hmm. to produce that much heat, much alone all the other phenomena that's happening in the body. Um, so it's being worked out right now, but the calculations seem to be that it's going to be like eight to 12,000 calories. Wow. So obviously, you know, most humans, uh, you know, have got some exceptional, you know, triathletes or something like that are doing lots of work, but the average human is not consuming that many calories in a day. So where is all of that extra energy coming from? Well, you know, we're starting to clearly see that the human body's in resonance with this electromagnetic field, this field we exist within, it's extracting some energy from that and producing this phenomena of creating more heat and more work than energy it's consuming. Wow. Okay. So that's two things that actually put out more than they've been given. And so breaking the laws of, as we know, physics today. Yeah, it's definitely modifying what our belief of, uh, uh, let's say the laws, quote unquote, of thermodynamics. Right. It's a, it definitely requires us to have a different look and a different perspective of uh, of what we think these laws are, which really aren't laws. They were guidelines. Yeah. And, you know, we're starting to see this in many uh, different venues whereby things are exceeding these laws. Well, that's, that's an interesting start. I'm sure you can give 10 more examples if you wanted to, yes. okay, because I think there are numerous out there. But why don't we jump into how you got here, because this is a company that I understand has some 10, 11 companies, 12 companies now that you're kind of backing and standing behind and working with um, that are all really interesting across these various sectors, and they all have this common element to them. So t- tell me how you discovered this and why why this all of a sudden became a passion, and you've been financing it yourself for so long as well, and as well as some, I think, friends and family and some other people you know helped finance these things. So how did this all get started? Yeah, great question. So... um. I'm 56 years old, and when I was in my 20s, early 20s, I became fascinated with looking at the brain, and I started developing, uh, just further developing technologies that already existed, some EEG-type technologies and working with people. And we would see some phenomena that would happen in the brain that, especially when people were in deep states of hypnosis and uh, very deep states of meditation, that current you know, science at that time especially, really couldn't understand or explain. And so some years after that, a friend of mine said, there's this physicist talking up in Northern California. He's going to present for six hours, and it may help solve some of these things you've been wondering about. First of all, I thought, hearing a physicist talk for six hours, I can't think of anything worse, right? Right. But uh, I didn't even know how to spell physics at the time. But I went to see this gentleman speak, and uh, what he shared is this concept of looking at how nature functions to solve these really complex problems uh, provided a clear light into uh, seeing how these phenomena that I experienced could be explained. And so I started supporting the work in 2001. Can you say who this physicist was? Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, his name is Nassim Haramein. Nassim Haramein. Okay, yeah. great. And... Uh, 
So starting working with him in 2001 and 2003, four, helped co-found a project called the Resonance Project Foundation. At that time, I think we had a few thousand people maybe following the work. And today there's a little over three and a half million people on social media following the work uh, and numerous papers, uh, publications, presentations, documentaries, DVDs have now been uh, released on this and uh, getting global awareness of this, uh, of the physics. And from this, these technologies emerged. So we began to understand that there were people all around the world that had this same understanding, Mm -hmm. but the current structure uh, of, of academia and engineering really didn't fully understand it. So there was a lot of pushback to accepting it. Right. And that is now starting to go away. So I started helping nurture these really great minds uh, that had these understandings and didn't know how to bridge between uh, their understandings, their concepts, maybe their inventions, and the regular business world. So wow. I sold my business in commercial real estate and. 2005 and you were in real estate huh That's yeah right. yeah oh, okay so yeah okay. the old uh you know clipping coupons and uh self-storage facilities modular housing communities ah okay all so, right so this was a passion on the side actually for a while yeah the, the work at all for sure did not pay any of the bills uh so had to make money in the regular world mm-hmm. and uh after we did pretty well in that was able to transition out of that and been funding myself and then with various partners and people that really believe in this ever since. Well, fantastic. Fantastic. So, so let's, let's dive into, you know, this, this matters to you and why, why does this matter? Why did you pursue it? What was in your calling, so to speak? We just had a guest here on the radio, Aaron Ratner, who talked about as a young kid, he just felt this energy pushing him into things that matter to him, the environment for one. And that's why he's focused on that. How about you? I mean, was it just curiosity of the brain that you're saying, or was there something else going on? Uh, that's That was the beginning, the little baby steps. But I think what happened was is that, well, I don't think I know what happened was, is we began to understand the implications of looking at this as a worldview, that pretty much every problem we're experiencing today uh, could actually be solved by this. So, you know, we're... There's many people starting to think that maybe we've been past the tipping point and some of the issues that we're looking at with the environment today, you know, some ocean problems, fisheries, you know, deforestation. And when we look uh, at how things work from this perspective, uh, it provides a, such a great degree of hope because we can facilitate change. We can facilitate, you know, resolution of challenges at such a uh, greater degree of coherency and speed than has really ever been contemplated. That is, it almost wasn't even a, uh, an option to not pursue this. It was like, okay, we're sitting on a, a fundamental understanding, uh, a fundamental principle that if widely adopted could completely change the human experience. So it was way past even wow. my, my ability to say, oh, to wow. do this or not. And I think almost any you know, awake uh, person that is committed to trying to help the system would be wanting to do this. 
Now, as a little side note uh, for our audience here, I met Mark literally a few months ago, okay, and directed to him by a friend that said Mark's doing something very interesting. And my jaw almost dropped when Mark was telling me some of the physics and some of the companies that we're going to go into in a moment or two um, that were doing things that I thought were just unbelievable, but they made sense when you start digging in and really understanding the physics. And the physicists now, which you can't pronounce the name, I'm sure, um, actually are quite extraordinary beings. And that was the most curiosity thing. These these are not educated PhD through the Stanford, you know, uh, Cambridge, Caltech, whatever curriculum. These are guys that woke up really early. Woke up is a really interesting word to begin with. But and decided not to go to school and pursue this on their own and build like nuclear reactors in their backyards and crazy stories like this. Tell me about these people that you meet and how do you find them all? Yeah, so it's really quite fascinating. You know, if you look back at you know some of the greatest minds that have existed, you know, Tesla, you know, Einstein, 10th grade, uh, you know, many did not go through the normal system of education because they had a different view on, on reality and how things worked. And so they went on their own to, you know, solve these problems. And many of the members of my team are the same. We have a couple PhDs, you know, a couple MDs and a couple engineers and really important that those people pursued those paths because we need to have a really good solid understanding of those systems. But the majority of my team, uh, you know, over 20, it's called scientists, inventors, creators, um, you know, left normal academia, probably, you know, ninth, 10th, 11th grade, because the information they were getting did not resonate with them. It was like, you know, it didn't answer any of the questions that they had of how does, you know, how does the nuclei of an atom that's spinning at near the speed of forever, speed of light forever, where does that energy come from? How does the sun do this? How do all these things happen? And they had insights to that. So when, I started working with Nassim back in 2005, six full-time. You know, we'd do these presentations on occasion, and uh, almost every single time there'd be one person left in the back of the room, and you could almost start to know who this guy was going to be. And he'd kind of have this little smirk on his face, and then he walked in and he says, hey, I didn't understand the physics fully, how it was presented today, but... I've been working on something or I've built something based on these principles. I've tried to talk with people. Nobody gets it. It seems like you guys get it. You know, I'd like to work with you. And so I began to understand that there was this whole group of these people out there, and they really had no ability to create a bridge. That's when we started out our conversation here today between, uh, you know, standard business structures, uh, you know, engineering concepts. And so that's how I started uh, working was to create an entity that could really help these uh, great minds facilitate their genius. Well, in case you're just tuning in here, let me just do a commercial break. <laughs> you're listening to the special show Money That Matters on Bay Area Ventures on Wharton Business Radio. Sorry, on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Roland Vanderbilt. My guest is Mark Hines. Mark is the founder and CEO of Resonant Technologies Group. And we're talking about how he engaged in this with the physicists and doctors and scientists and engineers to kind of help create these new ventures and technologies. If you have any comments during on our show, I invite you to call us anytime at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Mark, sorry to cut you off there. But no worries. These special beings and people, and also very normally educated people too, are all share what common interest. They just see something different in the world as that you've we've all defined. 
Yeah, it's a, that one is still, you know, trying to figure that out is, you know, how do some people have this awareness, uh, you know, more than others? It's not necessarily intellect. It's just that they have a different way of looking at how things work. Mm. Uh, you know, we've got some extraordinary MDs on our team and PhDs that have the same awareness. Um, so it's really saying, you know, uh, delving deep into just wanting to know regardless of any current paradigms mm-hmm. or, or current uh, beliefs to say, uh, I don't care. I want to just know the truth. I want to know how something is really functioning. And I think when people have that level of clarity that these awarenesses come to them. Yeah. So in a way, you're almost being Zen-like. You're saying it's the beginner's mind. It's the idea to keep on asking the questions uh, instead of locking into a paradigm that, you know, mathematical systems are great when they're contained in a, in a box. Once you step outside that box, they don't work anymore. And the same thing with physics. It keeps on changing as you expand the box. And these guys are just saying it's wide open and how do we ask the right questions? Yeah, that's a great analogy, the, the beginner concept. You know, just and so many things we just take for granted that you know what we're being taught. But if we ask some really simple questions, we have to start looking. Wow, if we don't even know this, such as you know this, we take for the sun, for instance. You know, we think, okay, if the sun is a thermonuclear thing, which could be heretical for me even questioning that on this uh, interview. Uh, but if the sun is thermonuclear current physics and science says, then why is the space between the sun and the earth about 450 degrees below zero Fahrenheit? Uh, It doesn't make sense. But if we look at it that uh, from a different perspective with our physics, it actually really answers this. And so even just asking these really basic questions that none of us do because we've just taken for granted that what science has been teaching us must be true, although science doesn't know that, really begins to propel us down a path of having to ask even more questions. Right, right. That's a a really good example. And I always thought it was the vacuum in space can't heat because it's a vacuum. And you're saying that's not really true, right? Yeah, no. We're starting to see some evidence that, uh, you know, the the sun, uh, the, the whole universe we exist in is what we call, you know, electric. It's there's some really great work being done by people out of Australia and uh, Vancouver, Canada, and England on what's called the Electric Universe Principle, mm. uh, the Thunderbolt Project, our work, showing, again, how these things, you know, black holes, all these things that current physics and science can't answer can begin to be answered with some really fundamental shifts in what we believe reality is. Well, I, I remember, and this is one I love to, when I talked to you initially the first time, was the idea of when you observe a nuclear experiment, any quantum level experiment, you influence the outcome. But your observation influences the outcome. That's just done time and time again. So it's never replicable that way because you're influencing the outcome. Or it is replicable, but in a different way. And a biological experiment, actually petri dishes grow differently depending who's observing them kind of thing. Those are really strange phenomena that says something. So this gets us into the conversation of the field at large, which is kind of a almost esoteric woo-woo kind of concept, but there's a field of energy around everything, right? And it's influenced by other fields of energy. And can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Well, yeah. So, yeah, I've got to, we always have to 
be a little careful when we start talking about this because it can easily be um, considered that we're really moving into some esoteric thoughts and esoteric principles, but it's really not esoteric at all. Well, even, even I mean, one more example yes. is the Pears Lab in Princeton. This is the, you know, engineering at Princeton, and they have a call a Pears Lab where mm. they break something apart, even DNA strands, and they put one in one room, one in another room, separated by lead or whatever, or even thousands of miles away, and they wiggle one or excite one, and the other one's excited simultaneously. They're connected through what? And we don't have a clue in standard world models here. So that's another example that I read about. It's everywhere. Yeah, without a doubt, and that was the example that I would give for sure is quantum entanglement, right? We we see quantum entanglement when we you know split atoms and they're going across the whole solar system in two different directions, and how without a doubt they're they're communicating. I mean, you know, this is known seventy, eighty years ago. You know, they called it spooky at a distance, right? <laughs> that, Wonderful. How, that how are how, you know how does a a school of sardines that's a mile long, you know? We've all seen this in a, a movie or some of us maybe even in real life where the front one moves and the back one moves instantaneously. Uh, you know, they've measured this. It's much, much, much faster than the speed of sound. So it's not happening through signaling or some sound or communication. Uh, you know, nature is rich with this phenomena that how is this happening? How is this communication happening and this understanding that we exist within this field of, of information and energy and that this field is highly coherent, it's highly structured, it's highly dynamic, that it solves really all of these inquiries. So, uh, and, you know, there's, I work with a really extraordinary medical doctor, MD, in Northern California. Uh, her name is Dr. Beth McDougall, and she's actually working with a team of people right now in a, a book coming out pretty soon called The Clear Solution, showing that really health can almost be narrowed down to one phenomena. There could be many, 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 many events influencing that phenomena, but at the most base and primordial level, the phenomena is that all health, aging, disease is a result of the level of coherency of information exchange with this field we exist within that our biology has, or the level of dissonance in the case of disease and aging that our biology has with this field. So, and it's starting to be you know, articulated and documented all around the world. Wow. Okay. So, so let's let's talk about this field of energy that we feel actually when I meditate, which I do, I'm a practicer, I do feel energy. I do feel it flowing in me. I do feel these things and I've read about chakras and all that stuff. And I, I think I either pretend or I feel, I don't know which it is. And they seem to be synonymous, but they seem to do something. So what are these fields of energy? What, what, what is that? What is that I'm experiencing? What are, what's nature based on then? Yeah. What a great question. So I would say it's not these fields of energy. I'd say it's a field so that uh, you know, the, we would say that in our physics and our science that that basically the entire universe is a field of energy, of information. And actually, there's been many institutions around the world, uh, academic institutions, that have looked at this field of information and energy and been able to quantify how much energy exists within this field. And it's a lot, a lot, a lot of energy. Uh, you know, they calculate that it's 
probably around 10 to the 93rd gram cube squared, which basically means if I took my fingers and I held them apart to the size if I was holding an invisible sugar cube, so which I'm doing right now, and that's a small amount of space, and I was to say, how much energy is in there? There would be enough energy if we could tap into that, really, to planet the entire Earth forever. Uh, to power the entire Earth? Forever. Uh, many, many, many more people that exist on the planet today. All that in your little square cubic uh, centimeter or so. I would say, well, let's, let's look at an atom. Yeah. So, you know, most everybody knows, and if they don't, it's very easy. Everybody agrees, at least, that the nuclei of an atom is spinning at near the speed of light forever. Yeah. Now, current physics and science has no explanation for that. There's a lot of atoms in existence. Yeah, especially in that little cube you just yeah. mentioned. But even, you know, the, the desk that's in front of us right now is, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of atoms. And so that's a lot of energy and the entire, just our solar system that is being exerted. Where does that energy come from? Mm -hmm. Again, current physics has no explanation for that. Mm -hmm. Now, their best explanation is that every atom in all existence emerged initially out of the Big Bang, which the Big Bang is now being questioned all around the world. That That's not how things came into existence. Wow. Um, it's not known yet, but it's starting to be questioned. But it came into existence out of the Big Bang, and then every atom in all of existence has been spinning in a frictionless environment ever since that moment of the Big Bang. Well, it's pretty easy for any of us to observe that we do not live in a frictionless environment. I rub my hands together, creates a little heat, friction. Right, right. right. So this field of energy we exist within explains all of this, yeah. that these atoms are in resonance, back yeah. again to the understanding yeah. of resonance, with this field of information, right. and they're extracting a very small amount of the energy potential yeah. in this field, and that's how we see the phenomenon of the nuclei spinning in perpetuity at a very rapid speed. Okay, so so you're telling me all this energy exists in this little cube I'm holding in my my hands. Um, for those listeners, I've you know it's about a centimeter cubed, um, maybe a little bigger. And in that, since all the energy we ever need to power the Earth many times over, so that's amazing. Yes. So because all those atoms in there are spinning so fast. Okay, so what you're saying is we know how to tap into that now, or things do tap into it. We don't even realize they're tapping into it. And what you're trying to do is figure that out how to tap into that energy. That's exactly it. So if we look at, you know, the, like I said, beginning, a magnet. Yeah. So, you know, that was some of the first things we looked at is, okay, if a magnet is producing all of this work. Right. Is doing really, you know, if I put it up on the ceiling, it's anti-gravitic. Right. It's defying gravity. Yeah. Which, you know, science would currently say that gravity is the strong force. Yeah. But if a magnet is overcoming gravity, it's pretty easy to see that, you know. A little little magnet can overpower gravity. Yeah, that you know, most likely electromagnetism is the strong force. Yeah. So if we can start working in resonance with that, yeah. understand the phenomena of how that magnet is getting all this energy and producing all this work, then maybe we can start to build some technologies based on this principle that can really completely transform the human experience. Wow. Okay. All right. 
Well, um, we're going to be taking a break shortly here. And because when we come back, I really want to dive into the actual hard companies kind of ideas and projects you've been working on and bring it home because this is fascinating. But until you kind of see and understand what you're actually doing with making products out of these things is the most important thing. So we're going to take a short break. I'm Roland Vandermeer. My guest of this hour is Mark Hines. Mark is the founder and CEO of Resonance Technology Group. Stay with us as we continue our conversation about what he's doing, about some of the innovative companies. You're listening to a special show called Money That Matters within Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Hello, and welcome back to the show Money That Matters within Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and my guest this hour is Mark Hines. Mark is the founder and CEO of Resonance Technology Group. And when we left off, we were just starting to talk about some of the companies and products he's been working on creating, bringing home this resonance physics idea into real tangible that we can all experience concepts and actually products. Mark, so let's start with that. Okay, so I think you focus on, you mentioned about four different areas, or at least I did, but can you talk about the macro areas and then let's dive into each one? What are the four basic or three basic areas you focus on? So energy, health. And uh, agriculture, material sciences. Okay, fantastic. So those are the general topics. And resonance physics, physics touches all these aspects of these different industries? That seems crazy. Yeah, that and more. Wow. Okay, all right. So that's the exciting news. And now let's bring it on home. So let's, where do we start first? Let's start on the most interesting thing. Our planet suffers from many, many problems, okay? And half the reasons for this show is to understand those problems and bring them home to people so people can engage and make a difference here and, and wake up to what's really going on because we have limited time. I want to segue for that for a second because I know you and I both read what the UN said. Uh, we have 10 to 12 years to get this planet in shape or we're in real deep doo-doo. I mean, things were going to happen that we we're going to be shocked by. And they already are, but it'll get worse. I really feel it's sooner than that. And I think you do too. I think in the next four to five years, if we don't solve these problems in a big way and start major efforts on moving these things forward, we're going to see some real challenges here. So that, that's, that's the primary reason that we need to get everybody engaged and do things. And that's what this show is about, what matters here. So Let's take on energy. Energy is one of the things that costs this planet a lot. I mean, we not only dig up the ground for energy, we burn it, we send it in the atmosphere, and it's overheating our planet, overheating our oceans, and causing all these ramifications we're reading about. And I don't care what the naysayers about this is. Climate change is upon us, and we're contributing to it. Whether it starts from us or ends with us, it doesn't really matter. It's happening. And carbon is a big part of that, and as well as the destruction of many things in the process. So energy, what are you doing in energy that makes a difference? Yeah, great question. So, yeah, one of our favorite topics. So what we're really looking at energy is we looked at the energy in the world and said, okay, there's really three vectors. So uh, there's storage, which we currently look at with batteries. Uh, There's electrical generation. And then there's what really consumes almost 50% of all electricity on planet Earth is electric motors. Uh, So, you know, creating torque moving things, whether it's a fan or a drill or really exploding now, which is the advent of uh, electric vehicles and electric bicycles, you know, the whole electric uh, propulsion world. Uh, so those are the three areas that we looked at and we said, okay, without a doubt, if we can solve just those three areas, we can pretty much transform how energy is understood and how energy is produced and used on the planet. 
-hmm. So the first place we looked at was electric motors. Right. So uh, we're pretty happy that uh, this year we got, or last year actually, in 2018, we got some of our first patents back on a really radically different understanding of electric motors. So, uh, you know, understanding today, probably about 48, 49% of all electricity on planet Earth is used by electric motors. By the reason that so much energy is used, because they're very inefficient. So most electric motors are about 60% efficient, meaning you have one watt of energy that goes in, 60% of that is converted to work. It moves a car, it spins a fan, moves a drill, whatever it does. All right. So if we could change that even a little bit, uh, we could change a lot of that almost 50% of electricity that's being used, which by 2022, it will be 50% on the planet as electric vehicles become uh, more integrated. So uh, we really had some breakthroughs by looking at this principle of resonance physics in building electric motor design. So we're going to be introducing that actually to the world uh, this year. Wow. And we're really excited about it because electric motors, how you gauge the efficiency is something that was referred to as a coefficient of performance without getting too technical. Okay. But how much energy goes in, how much energy goes out. So on a 60% efficient motor, that COP or coefficient of performance would be 0.6 on a 60% efficient motor. Gotcha. The holy grail of motors would be a COP of one, meaning 100% efficient. Wow. So you can, you can do that? Well, that would be the holy grail right. of normal physics. Okay. And uh, we're probably going to upset a few listeners. You've got some really bright minds listening yeah. to this uh, you know, call today. Uh, but you know, we've developed a motor that has a COP of greater than one, meaning one watt is coming in from whatever source, let's say from a battery source, and then more than that is able to be used to produce work. It doesn't mean that we're saying that the, in, the motor is more than 100% efficient. We're saying we've figured out a way to use a lot of the lost energy that current motor design loses from what's called flux, which is the, the power of the magnets, and many of these other dynamics, and turn that lost potential into work. So there's two dynamics of it. One is we're saying, yes, we've got to 100% efficiency, which is by relegating the back electromagnetic force, back EMF, and uh, then thereby resolving the issue with heat, but then using a lot of the other energy potential that's there, but that's just currently lost, and having that do work. So in a quick summary, what that means is if that my Tesla you know, goes 300 miles on a charge on a, let's say, a 100-kilowatt battery pack currently, maybe some more than that, but right around there, that with this motor technology, that Tesla could easily go 800 to 1,000 miles a charge with less battery because if you have a COP of greater than one, you could feed some of that excess energy back into the system right. and charge it. So. We're not 100% sure of what those calculations will be yet of okay. what the actual range, but that alone will change the entire picture of energy on this planet in regards to electric motors. Okay, so so you're saying that for our listeners here, so this is not magic by a stretch. This is not breaking laws. This is actually looking at magnetic flux loss or back EMF as you call it that's just being wasted and turned into heat, okay? 
you're actually rechanneling it, if I simplified it, rechanneling it and putting it back to work again, back into the motor itself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's a unique idea that people haven't done before. And you figured out a way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So most everybody will understand that in a circuit board, we're moving electrons around. Yeah. And what we're saying is we've created sort of a, a circuit board uh, uh, of, uh, in a field mm-hmm. inside of the motor. But instead of using our quote-unquote circuit board to move electrons, we're using this circuit board to move the flux path of these magnets. So instead of 90% of that potential uh, work that those magnets could do to be lost, we're now guiding that flux to do work. Wow. So, yeah, it's not overcoming any laws of thermodynamics. Okay. Or it's not going to you know, destabilize everything and you know, have to defy things. But it can clearly be understood how we can use these things that nature does right. and work for us. And you expect this year that to show people that this works and operates and all that? We expect uh, to be engaging with very significant entities mm-hmm. uh, by you know, late third quarter, early fourth, fourth quarter of this year. Okay. Yes. Okay. So very optimistic about that. That's awesome. Okay. So that's, that's your motor technology, right? Which yes. has ramifications, you said, from my uh, scooter to my hand drill to my car to every other motor out there in the universe that does some work, you know, for us. Two trillion electric motors. Yeah, we're not just talking about electric vehicles running around the the planet. We're talking about every motor and everything at this moment, that this is a new way to look at things. Yes. Okay, fantastic. And you have intellectual property around that. That's awesome. Yes. So we're waiting to see those results coming soon, I guess. Yeah, we're excited about that. to track you carefully. Next, you mentioned something that I think is a a hard term. It's called a solid-state generator or something like that, yeah. which is really what I like to say is a step-up transformer, yes. uh, which is more in my electrical speak, <laughs> easier to understand, uh, generators of motion implications. But um, tell us a little bit about that. You know, that sounds like an interesting idea. And we're really working on, uh, on the same principles almost of using this lost energy yeah. that comes from these electromagnetic fields, yeah. uh, directing that energy to do work. So it's a little more... Uh, complicated than electric motor, yeah. but uh, the acronym we use for it is the MEG, the Motionless Electric Generator. Wow. So basically using these electromagnetic fields that would normally create tension. Yeah. Like, you know, if I, if I, one of, a really good example is people can relate to is that if I took two magnets with opposing poles yeah. and I attempted to push them together, right. there's going to be a very significant repelling force. Yeah. So imagine that if I just took those two magnets and I glued them down, and I made them repel against each other, Right, that would be an incredible degree of tension. Right, all the time. All the time. Yep. Now, if I could just tap into that tension yeah. through a little technology, right. a design, right. then, again, I'm not overcoming any laws. So you've learned to work that potential we feel that we've never been able to do anything with, except for repel magnets from each other. Yeah, instead of just having it as like, okay, I can use these to do something with. Yeah. We're actually creating an environment whereby that tension becomes so uh, intense mm-hmm. and, uh, and then very manageable yeah. that we can then use that with some other technology that we have which is uh, you know, another patent that we have. And basically, instead of an electrical diode, we've created, created a magnetic diode. Wow. So now, through those two phenomena, yeah. we can take these principles, yeah. put them together, and create electricity 
from a non-moving uh, generation source. Yes, right. we are having to put some energy in it. Your right. statement in the beginning is a step-up transformer. Yeah. Would be a really good way to describe this is that you know we've got one watt coming in, yeah. and then through this phenomena we're able to more than one watt get more than one watt coming out. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, we're looking, and that's going to come out soon, maybe this year as well. Yes, they're they're on parallel paths. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. And I'm sure the audience would want to see when that happens. Again, you can track Mark Hines at Resonance Technology Groups as as these things come to work, and uh, there's a series of. 10, 11 companies or so in there. And we'll talk more about that as we go on. Um, I want to move on to the healthcare sector a little bit because I think you're doing some fascinating work there that really might just really get taken home for a lot of our listeners here as well. Um, so so let's, but let's the first, I think, let's first take a little quick break here um, in case you're listening here. This is the uh, show Money That Matters uh, within the Bay Area Ventures show on business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Roland Vandermeer. My, Mark, my guest is Mark Hines, and Mark is the founder of Residence Technology Group. If you have any comments or questions, give us a call. The phone lines are open, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Okay. Mark, so, so in the healthcare sector, okay, um, when I first met you, you told me about some really interesting technology and that had to do with her voice and, and what you can learn from the voice. And then I read lots of articles about, you know, diagnosing certain diseases with the voice imprint, too. And they're doing this for very specific voices. A lot of universities around the country and world are working on that. But you were talking something much more comprehensive, and I wanted to understand what that was. Yeah, so without a doubt, there's some great work being done all around the world right now in the U.S., uh, in Israel, uh, a few other places whereby they're looking at the voice to uh, use that as a diagnostic tool to look what's happening in the human body. And this technology we're really, really excited about. So uh, most everybody that we're aware of right now, um, they're using, for instance, uh, like in Parkinson's, they're looking at the, the quiver in the voice or they're looking at the actual physical characteristics of it to say, okay, somebody with Parkinson's, early stage Parkinson maybe even, can be identified by these physical characteristics in the voice and how it sounds and you know these type of things. What we're doing is we're actually looking at the information in the voice. So, you know, when we imagine waves, sound waves, all of us we think of this little line. Like if we look at an EKG or an EEG, we see these little lines of data coming out. And you know, all waves in nature are actually three dimensional. So these waves coming out of the voice that we just see as little lines, they're actually these like balloons filled with information. That's why most everybody listening today, they picked up a phone one time and somebody that they care about or somebody very close to them, and they pick up the phone and some person says hello, and instantly they say, what's wrong? Yeah. Okay. Uh, because the emotions, these, these emotional states, these biochemical things that are happening in the body are actually embedded in the voice and the person that knows that person so well, the super conscious picks up on that. Well, what we've done is we've created a technology that instead of using a person's uh, intimacy of the, another person and their awareness um, can actually decipher this data and then turn it into very usable information. So how it works is that we record a voice for 30 seconds. Okay. okay. Then from that 30-second voice print, that voice sample, we then send that to our algorithm that has been 
in development for many, 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 many years on thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and we can then look at that information and then decipher pretty much every single thing that's happening in the human body. Every single thing. Everything from this. Now, we can't make claims yet on that we're, you know, diagnosing, you know, metal conditions and these things because, of course, we're going to have to go through um, FDA uh, trials to get this approved as a medical diagnostic device, which we have not done yet. But we can look at some really benign things right now, such as, you know, sleep and stress and, you know, energy. Uh, so we can look at, although we can look at disease, we just can't do that as a diagnostic tool. We can do that in, in our lab and understand, yes, it's doing this. But every single thing happening in the body, pathogens, states of health, wellness, early detection of disease, all is going to be able to be done from a 30-second sample of your voice. Wow. And I mean, I actually did try this, as you know, because I was like, come on, really? Yeah. That was my first reaction. The second reaction when I saw it said, hey, my knee was all messed up, which it is. It has a problem. And my calf was too weak and this bone was injured and these muscles were sore. Those were interesting things. But B12, I think, was low and which I knew it was because I've been eating a lot of red meat or something like that. And other things that it just picked up were just phenomenal, and I was blown away by that. So the, is that what most people experience with this when they try it? Yeah, you know, we were just actually talking with a, a group today that runs uh, something called the, the Harvard Fund. Yeah. And, you know, a really great group of people. And, of course, the first question is, this sounds way too good to be true. Right. Uh, and we welcome that and embrace that because, of course, that's almost what the response should be. Right. And... Uh, but then so we usually get over that really quickly. We say, okay, record your voice, send it to us, then we'll tell you what we find. You know, don't tell us anything about what's happening in your body. And then after about a minute, they're like, okay, what the heck? How does this happen? How does this work? Right. And so it's a very easy objection to overcome. Right. Because as you know, the, the, the old idiom, the proof is in the pudding, you know, holds, holds very true here. And then, so, so that's the first half of the equation. The second half now, is, as I'm learning here, is so you basically you're seeing what's wrong with the person by this frequency patterns you see and you're matching it to certain disease states or states of the body, whatever they're in. But now you're able to go back to your and actually imprint back into the body via sound or by electrical or what is it you're imprinting back in? Yeah, so really another great question. So right now we're actually uh, in a study with a group that uh, is really looking specifically at neurodegenerative issues, uh, head traumas, you know, everything from you know concussions mm -hmm. uh, or even you know PTSD, these type of things. And so, what we're doing is we're getting an initial brain scan, and then after that, they do a voice print for us. They we get the data, and it's all being done third party, so we don't ever see anything in the beginning. And then from that data, we say, okay, here's what this person needs from a frequency perspective to harmonize their system. So then we create a 20-minute playlist, and the data we're getting from this is really quite extraordinary. So after a 20-minute listening through a specific set of headphones that we've developed also and listening to this playlist, we're getting, um, you know, we're observing that resolution is happening with these uh, degenerative or uh, traumatized brain states uh, in uh, you know 20 minutes, uh, which 
these facilities that are doing the studies for us have never seen before uh, with you know, standard technology. And so we're really excited with the results that are coming to be able to play information back to the body once we're looking at it from an information perspective. Wow. So this is so even more crazy is not only can you diagnose something or see something, you can actually send back patterns or frequencies that actually help ameliorate those conditions. Yeah, so for sure. And of course, we cannot you know, use the word diagnose yet, uh, but we can definitely make these observations and then send right. information back to the body and, and start resolving it simply through information and frequency. And it's it's really going to be a, a powerful leap we're going to be able to make in supporting human wellness. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because it's not so much a leap for me because it's actually, you know, frequencies and sound, you know, feels good. I listen to great music. I feel better. And there's certain frequencies that are all over YouTube that say they're healing frequencies or whatever. So these are actually exist already. And when I meditate with them or other people told me, they just feel good. So you're actually doing things and you're training the brain, so to speak. And biofeedback does the same thing, right? So this is not unknown stuff. It's just you're learning how to tune it in a little better. I'm waiting to see the products that come out of this. It'll be fascinating. Yeah, you know, I think the key word you're using there is feel, right? Because mm. the experience of feeling something mm. means that's a tangible experience. So in order to feel something, there actually has to be a biochemical phenomena for your body to produce a corresponding neurohormone to allow you to feel something. So for instance, if you're feeling the emotion of hate, if you're feeling the emotion of fear, if you're feeling the emotion of love, that is a tangible experience. Those emotions feel the same way every time because they produce a corresponding neurohormone chemical for that particular emotion. Wow. So if you're experiencing music that's allowing you to feel good, the music is producing a biochemical response in your body that's producing a corresponding neurohormone that allows you to feel that emotion. Wow. Okay. So we're just taking that much, 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 much further. Yeah. And yeah. breaking it down into a really uh, exacting science. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. Wow. So, so that, that's, that's a fantastic opportunity to segue into the this, this sound domain, keep on going, because I think there's a product that's spun out of there, and I've experienced it firsthand with this speaker technology, which sounds like it's kind of crazy, but it has to do with sound and fields and all that stuff, too. So tell us a little bit about this, because I understand it's fantastic, and God, I want those speakers in my house after I saw those. Yeah, most people have that uh, thought that they... Um, you know, want to have a, a set of these speakers. So it basically, we really came across the, the conundrum that in order to deliver this information to the body, we needed a new audio technology. And so we've created a, a whole system of, uh, of delivering audio to the body in a technology that's scalable all the way from hearing aids up to stadium-sized speakers that is, we believe, truly going to revolutionize the audio hardware industry. Um, so, you know, for instance... Today, if, you, if you're listening to a set of speakers and you want to listen, to, it's going to be 100 decibels, which is pretty loud. But let's just say to produce that, you would need maybe 50 to 65 watts of power Absolutely. to produce that. For us and our technology to listen to 100 decibel of sound, we would only need about one watt, two watts of power. Again, this is working on the principle of resonance physics. But So when the body gets this information, since it's in resonance with this electromagnetic field, really crazy things begin to happen to the human body. It goes into this natural balance, and we can then deliver 
these information frequencies, these information packets of data through sound in a way that the body will accept them. So we currently have them in a set of headphones that looks like we're going to be partnering with a couple people on to bring out to the world in fourth quarter of 2019, which we're really excited about. Oh, fantastic. Wow. Yeah, I will tell the audience here that the speakers were phenomenal. The core of my body vibrated, and I've been exposed to many musicians in my life since my whole family is musical, and my brother actually ran Meridian, uh, the speaker company, for a while, a part of it anyway. And uh, it was remarkable that uh, the sound that comes out of there, and, and, and I think it just impacts you. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. So low energy, really amazing fidelity, and harmonics that I've never experienced before. Um, even with a turntable and the best Macintosh amplifiers and speakers. Um, so unfortunately, we are out of time today. Okay. Because, Mark, you've been fascinating, and it's it's amazing. So Mark Hines here, of, uh, CEO of Resonant Technologies Group. Actually, it's a bit clandestine right now. I know you're going live soon. I think the R- website is rtg, rtg.io, yes. which will go live in a couple weeks or here or so, so you can track what's going on here. But thank you so much because this technology is amazing, and the Resonant Physics sounds amazing. And what we're going, what you're going to do sounds remarkable. So I'm sure the audience will tune in. I'm Roland Vandermeer, listening to Wharton uh, Bay Area Ventures here on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. And good evening, everybody. Thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 